Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Jennifer Clements, and I am Clinical Professor and Director of Pharmacy Education at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy in Greenville. And I'm joined today uh, by Diana Isaacs, who is Clinical Pharmacy Specialist and Director of Education and Training in Diabetes Technology at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, and this features conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is sponsored and supported by Nova Nordis and is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Diana, thanks for joining me today, and we're going to go ahead and get started as we're going to focus Um, on pharmacotherapy for obesity. And the first question that I wanted to hit on is guidelines. We could really go back to probably 2013 when we had the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and the Obesity Society guidelines. But those are clearly very out of date being published more than 10 years ago. We have endocrinology guidelines, the Obesity Medicine Association, and then, of course, the American Diabetes Association, if we focus on people with type 2 diabetes that are also living with obesity. So some of these have been published, you know, more recently based on maybe a specific population or this is their area of specialty. So they get updated quite frequently. And then, of course, I think some need to be updated. I know for myself, I kind of rely on, I still look at ACE, so the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, and then I also look at the American Diabetes Association because I feel like, especially in the 2024 standards, there were some great updates uh, within their section, but then again, we know that it is common for people with diabetes to be living with obesity. So I really reflect on these guidelines quite often, but I'm Curious from your perspective, especially in an endocrinology office, you know, what's your preference for guidelines when you look at obesity or weight management? Yeah, well, I think the, in terms of guidelines, the best guidelines are the most current ones because this is such a dynamic and changing field. We're constantly getting new agents. And so you could have a great organization putting out great guidelines, but if they're five years old, that's going to be not as useful in clinical practice. So for that reason, I have to say I really love the ADA standards of care because we rely on the fact that they are updated every single year. We know every December they'll come out with new guidelines. And sure enough, our, our 2024 guidelines have incorporated terzepatide, also made a statement really about the GLP-1 receptor agonists or dual agonists being the preferred treatment for weight management. So I'm a big fan of those, but also I like ACE, I like the other organizations too, but I want to follow what is kind of the most, the current. No, I completely agree. I do think, you know, ACE has a lot of great information when it comes to maybe staging. They have a nice chart with, you know, different comorbid conditions and what agents are preferred. But yeah, they're definitely 
still out of date because they have even Lord Kasserin, uh, which was Belvique, incorporated in those particular clinical practice guidelines or consensus report. And that was taken off the market given some risks associated with um, certain types of cancer. So yeah, I definitely agree that's got to be the most up-to-date guidelines. Often in clinical practice, there, there can be some confusion. So you know, if we look at this, when liraglutide came out, we knew Victoza indicated for type 2 diabetes and the maximum dose being 1.8 milligrams. Then Saxenda came out, also liraglutide, but for obesity, and we'd had to get to it at a 3 milligram. So we've seen some confusion, you know, historically with that medication. And then again, when it came to Ozempic, uh, for diabetes, and then with Govi for obesity. And now we have Mongero and Zetbound for trisepatide. So often what happens in clinical practice is when one medication has been available historically for type 2 diabetes, people have used it off-label. Among people that are living with obesity but don't necessarily have diabetes, and this has caused maybe it's clearly some confusion, but also I understand people are trying to get them the medication that they may need to be successful before the actual medication for weight loss um, comes out and is available in the market. So there's a lot of confusion or off-label uses. And so from your clinical perspective, you know, how are you interacting with patients and what are you telling them? Because I'm sure you've encountered people that don't have diabetes, but they want this medication because they know about the weight loss. And how are you working through that, given that, um, again, they don't have diabetes and maybe that drug wasn't available quite let, yet, like Wagovi or something? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy times because you've got people that are coming begging for a diabetes diagnosis. They're like on the border, maybe pre-diabetes. They're like, what can I do? I, I need diabetes so I can qualify to get this drug. So, so yeah, it, it is definitely, we see all kinds of things. I think we really first saw this with liraglutide because like, as you mentioned, the weight management dose Saxenda goes up to three milligrams, but the diabetes dose does 1.8. So what we would see was providers trying to prescribe the Victoza, but give enough to do three milligrams a day. And that created a lot of problems because insurance wouldn't cover it for three milligrams per day. Um, and, and they would do different things because the penalty would go up to 1.8. So they just do two doses, you know, all kinds of things. But ultimately, it was usually an issue with insurance. In the case of kind of now what we see with Ozempic versus Wegovy, I think what complicates that a little bit is the devices are are just completely different. Wegovy is like a one-time dose versus Ozempic, you've got the pen that you can kind of, you've got the clicks on it. So in terms of, and then the devices, like the Wegovy devices were in shortage for a while. So we had a lot of people that were then trying to get Ozempic. But if they were did not have diabetes, it was going to be very difficult to get Ozempic. So sometimes we have had success with obtaining it off-label, like in a person for weight management who doesn't have diabetes, being able to get the Ozempic or the Mount Jaro, the diabetes version of it. 
Uh, I would say with terzepatide, at least it's less problematic in terms of the dosing because the dosing is actually the same for both conditions. So that's a little bit straightforward, even though the names are different and the pens just look a little different in terms of their colors. Um, so, so it's interesting, but ultimately a lot of times it does come down to insurance. And if someone doesn't have a diabetes diagnosis, trying to get the diabetes version can be a problem or sometimes initially they get it, but then their insurance plan catches on and then they deny it after a few months, which creates that problem of starting it and then having to stop it. So yeah, those are kind of some of the things we're seeing. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we tend to focus on you know, people living with type 2 diabetes, but often the question could be, well, what about those with type 1 diabetes? The longer, you know, someone has type 1 diabetes, obviously they get insulin um, through injections or pumps. And so they, they do gain weight. And I know that the term of double diabetes has been used because of the weight gain that could happen and we know that if you gain weight, then obviously you're at risk of living with obesity now. However, if we look at the clinical trials for weight loss with pharmacotherapy, they exclude those with type 1 diabetes. There's also some evidence if we look at drugs indicated for type 2 diabetes where they have been studied as off-label in the specific population of type 1 diabetes and shown good effects, meaning that they lost weight and therefore they also required less insulin. And so I'm curious from your perspective, especially again in an endocrinology clinic, how often are you guys using weight loss medications in those with that have type 1 diabetes, you know, and and you know what kind of results are you seeing among that population? I love this question and it, it makes me very excited. So we use a lot of GLP-1 agonists in people with type 1 diabetes. There is some literature out there. So um, even going back to liraglutide, it was studied in the adjunct clinical trials for type 1 diabetes. And it did show a decrease in A1C, some weight loss. Um, ultimately, it wasn't pursued as an FDA-approved indication. And there was a, a slight increase in ketosis, not necessarily DKA, but ketosis. And so the manufacturer decided not to kind of go ahead with that. Now, this is, there was actually recently a study that just came out. This was a retrospective study from Viral Shaw's group um, out of Barbara Davis, but it was called the efficacy and safety of terzepatide in adults with type 1 diabetes, a proof of concept observational study. And in this study, they had 26 adults that were basically taking terzepatide and showed that the A1C decreased by 0.45% at three months, 0.59% at eight months, and body weight decreased by 10.1% um, after eight months of use of terzepatide. Also, time and range increased as well, along with decreasing A1C and really side effect profile was very, very well tolerated. So that's very encouraging. Ultimately, we, we need randomized control trials, and there are some studies underway with both semaglutide and terzepatide. There was a very interesting letter to the editor in New England Journal of Medicine out of Buffalo 
where actually new onset people with type 1 diabetes were using semaglutide and it showed it was even able to preserve some of their um, insulin function and, and lower the amount of insulin that they needed. Um, so I think there is a lot of promise in this population and certainly just for the weight effects. We know that overweight and obesity pretty much affect the type 1 diabetes population very similar to the general population. So even though it wasn't necessarily studied in the overweight obesity clinical trials, it technically, someone with type 1 diabetes, if you are using it for weight management, it's not necessarily off label. And so we have had success with obtaining these agents in this population. And we are seeing, I would say we're seeing very good outcomes. Often similar to what you see with type 2 diabetes, the weight loss may not be as significant as a person without diabetes, but we are seeing insulin doses being able to go down a little bit. And it is very important if you are using it in this population that you respectively decrease insulin doses to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. Excellent. I do love that question too. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're here joining me on this, you know, based on your experience in an endocrinology practice. While we discuss these agents, we know there's been some issues with drug shortage. I guess to add some humor into this, you know, we know that there's been a high demand for these particular agents. If we look at Wagovi, for example, and even, you know, Ozempic, as we mentioned, people using it, wanting it without maybe the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And so there's been a high demand. And also, I think, to, again, to add some humor, we can think of how social media drives what people want, you know, videos on TikTok or Instagram even in magazines. And I always say if a Kardashian is doing it, then I think everybody wants to do it. But social media, magazines, off-label uses has really driven some drug shortages with these medications. And that's affected, you know, the manufacturers, the providers, the endocrinologists, the, the people with diabetes, right? Um, probably researchers and definitely us as pharmacists, because we're often looked at to be the ones to communicate to the individual, to the team about these current shortages and what are we going to do about it in terms of maybe an alternative therapy and how do we do the conversion and et cetera, et cetera. I feel like the list is extremely long when it comes to drug shortages. So from your perspective, what has been the impact in your practice with these drug shortages and how have you been able to navigate through them? Yeah, uh, such a good question. And this is impacting us, unfortunately, so much. And we have to get creative with solutions because what we don't want is someone to abruptly discontinue the agent. So it depends a lot on the, the, the shortage. Sometimes it, one pharmacy doesn't have it and we have to look around in our area and find a pharmacy that is does currently have it. Uh, sometimes we have to get creative with the doses. So for example, if a, someone's on a higher dose and that's on shortage, we go down to a lower dose and some dose is better than no dose. So while that may not be optimal, optimal, uh, we do go down to the lower dose. Now, what we can't do, let's say someone's on terzepatide 10 milligrams. We generally can't do terzepatide five, two doses because that's really expensive and insurance is not going to cover that. 
So it would be unfortunately just going down to, for example, to the trisepatide five. Now, other things we can do are switching. So let's say one drug, let's say semaglutide's on shortage, but trisepatide's available. We can switch. I think it's not optimal to be switching agents all of the time, but if something is just not accessible, then switching to kind of a comparable dose to another agent is an option as well. So those are kind of some of the strategies that we're using. And hopefully, I know the manufacturers are working really hard to meet the demand. So hopefully, the shortages will be less and less over time. Yeah. Well, with these agents too, you know, like semaglutide, for instance, there has been some reports about how it affects, you know, appetite, energy intake. I've also seen some evidence on food preferences. You know, do you, being on this drug, do you prefer more savory or sweet or salty foods, for instance, or does it change how much protein, fat, and carbohydrates that you eat? I know if we kind of switch and look at trisepatide, and particularly if you look at some sub-study analysis from Surmount 1, there's also been some evidence regarding that drug with changes in body composition, particularly at 72 weeks. So really showing that it lowered body weight with greater fat mass loss than lean mass loss. From my clinical experience, you know, I think we have to recognize this adverse event and, and educate people on it. But I've also seen some variability, you know, with the fat loss and lean muscle mass loss. And I've always provided guidance more on lifestyle modifications. You know, these are the things you need to do to maintain muscle mass um, so that you don't lose it as often that we think they may if there's a rapid weight loss that happens. So I'm curious from your perspective, what practical strategies do you give to individuals to maintain muscle mass when they're on these agents for weight loss? Yeah, such a great question. And our this is one of the reasons our dietitians get frustrated because um, they see these patients and they're not eating. Their their appetite is so suppressed. They're not eating or they're they're eating, but they're not eating in a healthy way. Um, but they're still losing weight, so they're happy about it. But um, so this is a very, very important issue. And my advice is utilize the dietitians, refer to the dietitians. I think it's very, very important if someone's appetite is suppressed to make sure they're eating healthy and they're getting good quality nutrition. Uh, strength training is very, very important. I think we're still learning about the impacts of muscle loss. And we do want to be very careful that muscle mass is preserved, especially as people age. And so exercise is extremely important. Most people don't get the recommended 150 minutes a week of aerobic exercise and at least two to three times per week of, of strength training. And so encouraging that, encouraging enough nutrition, protein intake, is very, very important. And so, um, yeah, utilizing the team dietitians, if you got, if you're fortunate like us and have exercise physiologists on your team, <laughs> that's really great. Uh, but the, the lifestyle is just, it's so essential. And we, we need to remind people of that and really encourage the nutrition and the exercise. Yeah. 
And while we're speaking of this weight loss, you know, I think we have to think about the the target we set with individuals as well as then once they achieve that, there may be a point where they plateau. So I've always, with kind of a target, encouraged the individual to always continue to think smart. You know, it, it goes back to the basics of a specific, measurable, obtainable, realistic, and timely goal that they can achieve over a certain period of time. And I say that because I've had individuals where they come to me and they're like, Jennifer, I want to go back down to my weight when I was 18 years old. And you're like, well, what was that? Well, that was 150 pounds. Well, you're at, you know, 290. That's that's a long journey ahead of you. Um, let's break it down into smaller goals. So I think that's a very practical strategy to get them to where they want to go. But I also like to focus on you know, why this sort of weight loss, you know, we generally say five to 10% can benefit them because it goes back to improving their quality of life, improving cardiometabolic parameters. But when people hit plateaus, I think we have to look at many different things. You know, how much weight have they already lost? Lifestyle modifications, what further things can they do? And I really liked in the last topic how you highlighted the role of dietitians you know is it's not always on us as pharmacists you know we we are the experts in the medications but to manage you know obesity and to provide person centered approach for weight loss it requires a team so there may be times when someone plateaus in their weight that we rely on other healthcare professionals to help us out because it could reflect on what they need to do with lifestyle modifications and anything like that. As pharmacists, we would evaluate, is there any new medication that's preventing weight loss, you know? So I'm curious from your perspective, you know, are there any additional practical tips that you do in your practice when it comes to weight targets and plateaus? Yeah, well, you know, going back to dietitians and team-based care, I think the behavioral health is also a key component as well. And we know people eat for various different reasons. It could be emotional, stress-based. And so utilizing our behavioral health team can be very beneficial as well as needed. I think to your point, it's important to look at how much weight has been lost we know, yes, there's there's a ton of benefits from 5 to 10% weight loss. And now, in fact, we see if people can achieve 10 to 15% weight loss, that in terms of the cardiovascular benefits, blood pressure, diabetes, lipids, sleep apnea, arthritis, I mean, there are so many benefits. And that 10 to 15% seems to be key. So if someone has already lost that amount of weight, I think it's about kind of setting up those realistic expectations that they're doing very, very well. And if they can maintain that weight loss, they're going to have a lot of health benefits. They don't need to reach the weight they were when they were 18 years old. So I think level setting in that capacity is is very, very helpful. Now, if someone would highly benefit from losing more weight, or maybe they haven't achieved that 15% yet, then I think utilizing that team-based approach for sure is very beneficial. And um, also just reevaluating the pharmacotherapy as well. Some people are on agents that make it more difficult to lose weight. It could be various, it could be psychiatric medications. It could even be, could be a diabetes medication like a sulfonylurea or insulin. So we should definitely look and see, are there medication changes 
that we could make. And then depending on the agent that they're on, if they're on one GLP-1 receptor agonist, is there another one that now may have higher efficacy uh, that we can potentially switch them to? Can we put them at a higher dose? So I think there's actually, there's multiple approaches that we can take depending on the situation. Yeah, it's all about the person-centered approach. For the last question or topic, you know, it really focuses on monitoring and, and the frequency of, I guess, how often you would bring someone in for follow-up. I mean, of course, we could look at a specific agent and based on its mechanism or adverse events, we know what to monitor. And of course, we're talking about weight loss. So we could monitor their weight loss over time, um, absolute or a percentage, and then also measuring waist circumference. And there's maybe some other ways people do it in certain practices. I know from my point of view in a primary care office, I often would try to bring people back monthly for at least three months um, when starting an agent just to kind of touch base, talk about, you know, tolerability with that drug, because for some instances, we may be going up on it at that month, um, or I could do it through telephone and even sooner. I didn't really encourage them to weigh themselves every day, really try to limit that, you know, and look at the patient just because I didn't want them to get frustrated if they didn't lose weight, for instance, or maybe not as quickly as they thought they would be doing. But I think there's different strategies. And of course, sometimes where I practiced, it was a rural area, so they can't always come back as frequently. So I really just tried to work with them as best as possible, touching base through telephone, you know, in different strategies, but I, I really try to touch base monthly for at least three months before maybe extending it out, depending on their progress. I'm curious from your perspective in an endocrinology office, you know, are y'all doing anything specific when it comes to monitoring and the frequency of follow-up with certain weight loss medications? Yeah. So follow-up is really important. And it, I think it's important that people feel that they have a team backing them up. They have a support system. And especially in the beginning of someone's weight loss journey, having that more frequent follow-up. I mean, when you look at the intensive lifestyle changes and the clinical trials um, done with a lot of these agents, they were following up quite frequently initially, like even up to every week or every two weeks. So I think people definitely benefit from frequent follow-up, especially in the beginning. Um, and so that can, that can vary a little bit. It helps when you do have multiple people on your team. So it's not one person reaching out to every patient, like every single week. So if you can alternate it with, for example, dietitian, uh, you've got your endocrinologist or primary care provider, you've got your pharmacist and any others, any behavioral health psychologist, social workers that you may have on your team helps tremendously. Um, but I think it doesn't have to be with virtual care, we're able to do a lot more. And so a lot of our follow-up is it can be a phone call, it can be a virtual visit, a Zoom visit. Uh, we also do shared medical appointments. So people really gain peer support from that. And it's a more efficient way to see a larger volume of people as well. I think with these GLP-1 agents that monthly at least monthly makes a lot of sense, especially in the beginning, because of the fact that we're titrating it at those intervals usually. And so it helps to evaluate the side effect profile of it 
And one thing that's especially important is if people are experiencing a lot of GI side effects, we do want to make sure we're actually checking monitoring kidney function as well, because um, although not super common, they can cause acute kidney injury, which is more common in people that have those severe GI side effects. So I think it's important we're checking in on that. And we're doing person-centered titration. We're not just automatically saying, okay, it's been four weeks, you must go to the higher dose. We're checking in on those side effects and we're tailoring it to the individual as needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's great. So we covered a lot today in this episode. I mean, I think some key things to highlight is we want to use the most recent guidelines and some do need to be updated because we have new new medications and there's going to be a lot coming in the pipeline. So I think it's something for organizations to consider to update on a frequent basis. We know that uh, there's been some maybe questions in clinical practice regarding off-label uses and because of other factors, we've seen some drug shortages with newer medications, um, even once for type 2 diabetes. And so we need to really navigate through that. And I think overall, you know, with our last couple of topics, we've highlighted the role that person-centered approach um, has with weight loss, particularly being part of a team and utilizing our other team members to help that person be successful and how that could, can look different for each individual depending on what medications they're on. So going back to how often we come in for follow-up, um, what we're specifically monitoring based on their tolerability and efficacy as well. But that's all that we have today. Um, again, my name is Jennifer Clements, and I really want to thank Diana Isaacs for joining me today for this great discussion. We hope that you learned something as well as enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.